It's August 30th, 2021, and I'm here with Matt McGregor and Mike Benitez from the Merge Newsletter to, to discuss the latest happenings in the world of acquisition. So we'll start with some stories from the Merge. An F-16 Viper received an in-flight software update during the recent proof-of-concept flight test that shows the viability of treating the F-16 and other combat aircraft like a Tesla, whose cars regularly receive over-the-air software updates that add new features and functionality. The F-16 was 369 miles away from the lab that sent the software update, but the data traveled 40,000 miles because it was bounced off a satellite in geo. And that's because it was broadcast message. Any F-16 flying anywhere in the world would also have been able to instantly gotten the update. So Mike, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, so this was a uh, this was an interesting story. It's about finding a way to connect, make things connect. And the interesting part about this is that it was kind of the idea of two people. And over the course of about eight months, uh, because we own the hardware and we own the data rights to the software, and we have airmen that can code, uh, this was a uh, in-house effort. So the, the U2 has a Fed Lab that's kind of similar to this. Uh, but it's it's a little it's integrated differently, and by that I mean there's only 32 U2s in the whole world, and they have a very specific collection mission. But there's over 900 F-16s in the Air Force right now, so there's a huge opportunity to scale. But the one thing that's kind of sad is we were able to do it with an F-16 uh, using what's called a CDU, a, a central display unit. And the the interesting part is it's not really a central display unit because it's really like a, a computer has its own processor. And the sad part is it's called a, a CDU. And so everyone thinks it's a central display unit. And so the active duty F-16s actually don't have this equipment because it's not funded. But all the Guard and Reserve F-16s and the test F-16s we have do have it because it is funded. And so as we look to get rid of some of these older F-16s, they actually have the ones with the CDUs. And the newer ones we're keeping actually don't have the CDUs yet. So it's, it's kind of a story about uh, branding uh, gone, gone sideways. Matt, you want to jump in? Oh, no, I've, I've always loved this uh, this effort uh, with the U2. I mean, you know, I think the, the pilots actually kind of kind of were pushing it on the U2 and they kind of showed what, what could be done. And so, no, I love to, love to see this. Definitely, uh, you know, lots of options to upgrade some of our legacy fleet and maximize it, you know, maximize the life of those pretty incredible platforms. So this is good stuff. Yeah, it's my understanding, like those were two different shops, but they were potentially using the same kind of technology. I know uh, we heard probably a year or two ago that that uh, Nick Shalon was looking to do these types of software updates using Kubernetes and these containers can go to any type of combat aircraft. They'll run the same, but then you could also use like different containers in the same way and the same processes to do all of the mission systems. So like this is kind of like a proof of concept of a, much greater kind of thing that could happen across the, the force, right? Yeah, it was interesting is when you talk about uh, like the containerized software, you know, when for a long time we had a lot of federated systems and then we pushed for this integration in software. Well, the problem with integrated software in a uh, something that flies, there is flight critical software and then there's less critical software. And when it's all in one big bin of code, it's really, really hard to update one thing without doing your regression testing on the other. And so having a federated system, in this case, allows you to do things that you could never do with an integrated platform. Like this is mostly done on the non-critical side, right? Most of these. Yeah, this is non-critical because it's federated. So the CDU is almost like its own open mission system. So it has its own processor and its own enclave. It's not actually integrated with where the flight control software is. So that's how you're able to do it. 
And so it'll be interesting to see how we can um, build an enclave into our future platforms, like our fifth gen F15EX when we get to the next block that has OMS, um, if, if and when we go there. So it'll be interesting to see how we actually can learn off of this platform and this initiative. And there's some other things in the pipeline off of this kind of test that we're building off of. So we're trying to do Starlink into the cockpit next, which has, there's a couple of tech challenges with that, but uh, I mean, you can put a man on the moon, we can put internet in the F-16. That's a good point. Yeah, it, it seemed like one of the problems was trying to take these open source tools and, and then try to be able to run those deployments in a, you know, without internet connection, right? And yeah. so they had, that's where the, the whole satellite thing gets involved in. So it looks like, you know, maybe the, military is out a little bit of head here and we'll be able to integrate with Starlink, which will be the next generation of internet. Right. Yeah. And we've had, uh, we've had Starlink, uh, they just passed a hundred thousand terminals shipped and we've had Starlink on an AC 130 about 18 to 24 months ago under a project called global lightning. And there's a couple of platforms wide body that we've flown it on. Uh, the tech challenge there is how do you, uh, miniaturize the antenna array? Uh, without losing the the bandwidth on a aircraft that's moving much faster. So that, again, we can put a man on the moon, we can figure that out. Right. So this story here was interesting because it had a couple of aspects and we'll get to both of those. But the first one here is that, like, I would actually like to touch on the electromagnetic warfare um, because actually this was a test to see how you could update the ALQ 213, right? The 213. So that EW system. So you had another article that was about EW overall, and you say here, the Air Force has been asleep at the wheel for nearly three decades when it comes to EW. Those Air Force, those are the words of the Air Force Chief of Staff, General Brown, not ours. That said, several events over the past year indicate that things are finally changing. The Pentagon released an electromagnetic spectrum superiority strategy, the third EMS strategy in eight years. Congress wants to add a 31st mission area for the Pentagon in law called Spectrum Operations. The Air Force finally stood up a spectrum warfare wing and industry established the RV Jones Institute, a nonprofit that's the world's first EMS center of excellence. So interesting things happen in EW. Anything else to add on here? Uh, Matt, you want to take this one? Um, yeah, I guess the, uh, the only thing that, that struck me was, you know, just how far we've, we've come on this one. I mean, I was on the F-35 when, you know, they were standing up the reprogramming lab and it was just. I think you kind of made the point in your article. It, it was a lot of spreadsheets. They actually developed like this kind of archaic looking tool to kind of, you know, select all the techniques and all the different things that you have to do to reprogram. And uh, it was just brutal. Every person who took that job, uh, you know, they were only there for like a year or two, but they look like they aged like 10 years. So, so yeah, it's, it's really, it's really awesome to see just, you know, the Air Force finally picked up the game and, and they've really, you know, started, started doing the right thing. And it looks like looks like we're on track here. So uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a couple other things going on, and I think that uh, it's probably going to finally sink in with people. So besides some analysis on the doom and gloom of the contested spectrums that we're going to be having um, as we pivot into a uh, either a Russia or China competition, uh, there's also when you field something that works pretty good and you put it in a scenario that generally doesn't have a contested spectrum. Uh, when you see that that train wreck happen and you go, wow, this this one box with a couple uh, antenna arrays, a uh, transmitter and some algorithms really screwed up the entire war. Like, yeah, it, it really can. Uh, the problem is historically is, you know, you can't you can't go to an air show and see it. 
right? And there's nothing for you know, a congressman or a general or anything to pose in front of, um, you can't show off a wave for, or an algorithm. And it's really, it's, it's really hard to get people to buy into the capability that it can or can't do. Sometimes they don't work as advertised, uh, because you can't see it. So that's, that's been kind of a cultural hurdle that maybe with everything that's going on, we finally, um, have overcome that, but time will tell. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm going to jump over to one of the articles for this week. Army cuts procurement of airborne jammer in smaller electronic warfare budget from the Army Times. Quote, the Army eliminated its plan to buy a top electronic warfare system for fiscal 2022, cutting about $12 million in spending from the drone-mounted jamming pod under development. The decision to delay buying the multifunction electronic warfare pod as part of the Army's broader budget trimming reflected in its decision to cut the request for electronic warfare by more than half, seeking $48 million in FY22 compared to $113 million enacted a year before. Lockheed Martin has worked on the pod mostly under its own internal research and development funds. So I don't think this is necessarily related to what you're talking about there, uh, Mike, or maybe it is that sometimes it's easy to fund like the, the shiny hardware and less easy to kind of, uh, you know, fund, the, fund the, the other things that, you know, are electronic warfare. You can't really see it, even though there is hardware in there, it's increasingly becoming software defined, of course. And so, yeah, I'm not, yeah go ahead. Yeah, no, you're right. And this one, I think there's more to the story because of... Uh, they cut the buy uh, as a program of record for the jammer, but they didn't kill the program. And so instead of using procurement dollars, my understanding was they're actually requested about 10 to $15 million to do further R&D. And so what that tells me is that trying to put a brand new jamming pod on a MQ-1 uh, Gray Eagle is probably not the way forward. But if you could put that pod on something else that flies, uh, whether it's in the army or not, um, there's probably a way forward there. And based on being on MQ1, it looks like it's on a pretty, uh, it's a pretty small payload. So I'd be curious to see uh, how that goes forward, whether it goes on a, a helicopter or any of the other kinds of drones that we're, we're looking at buying. Yeah, I'm also wondering to what degree they feel like they're well-funded or that they might be deferring that to like a future year, just procurement, you know, and let things come along from what's already happening. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they might also, they, they, I mean, this was like really rough year for the Army. Um, I could definitely see them wanting a, a larger EW presence given their experience in, in Syria with uh, Russia. But, um, you know, they, they, they probably can't, probably can't afford so much. Like you said, Mike, maybe, uh, maybe there's also a little bit of a trade-off there is, yeah, we can't, we can't put the money there to buy these things. So maybe we uh, work with Lockheed to get this to the next gen or, or, you know, build it out to, uh, to, to work on another platform. So they may have, they may have had to make a hard trade off here where if they had, if they had a bigger budget and the Navy didn't steal all their money, they might have uh, maybe chosen a different route. So continuing on uh, the F-16 uh, software in-flight software update, you know, that was really about not, not really the EW system that it was deployed to necessarily, but the broader uh, points in software and networking and, so we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that, but you have an interesting story here. For a generation of permissive operations in the Middle East, the military has survived on the backbone of disjointed communication and data link networks. To glue it together, the Air Force has used an airborne communication relay and gateway payload known as Battlefield Airborne Communication Nodes. Not surprisingly, I easily shot down a Navy RQ-4 variant in 2019, which was carrying the bacon, the 
Battlefield Airborne Communications node. What is surprising is that the Air Force is doubling down, buying six more each, another platform that that can run the system to uh, to continue bacon missions. Clearly, a manned business jet, which is the EL, the manned business jet, isn't any more survivable, and operations in the Middle East are winding down. So, what gives? Yeah, what gives, Mike? Uh, well, my uh, my personal opinion is. Uh... It's a program that's looking for flexibility and agility. And so if you go with a manned platform, just the way that the, uh, not just the national airspace, but globally moving it around uh, is, is much easier. And by investing in something that's based on a, a biz jet, you're, you kind of leverage a global uh, supply chain of dual use uh, logistics. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do with, with that kind of platform. So my story, uh, no kidding, 10 years ago, I remember flying with a platform like this that actually had uh, some, some hardware and software on it that allowed it to be on the F2's iFiddle. And so you could see on, on our Link 16 data leak, all the F2 position and targeting data because we had something like this. And so it was able to connect uh, the, two of, uh, the two of us together. Well, how that's connected to AVMS, uh, I think it's too soon to say there's a lot of uh, a lot of things going on in AVMS the past month, and I think we're going to see some some things flush out over the next few months now that we have a new secretary who is trying to zero in on AVMS. And, and, and when you look at the, the bacon, the the, EL, you know, the Army, they just announced, I think yesterday or today, that uh, they actually went with L3 Harris for a demo for their, uh, their airborne reconnaissance uh, EW system, uh, Ares or Ares. And that's actually based on the same exact business platform. So uh, you can see that there, there's definitely a promise for something that can carry five to 6,000 pounds that has uh, the generator output to put some power to it. And it can stay airborne for 12 to 14 hours. Uh, stay is another problem. Yeah, it also just seems like a, um, it, it's, it's one of those things too, where I feel like ABMS still has, still has a long way to go to be a, a, you know end-to-end connected, provide the capabilities that the, the uh, the force needs, but this is, this is something that's been proven out, right? Like time, time and again, you know, the, the 11s come, come in and provided a, a, you know, critical capability, you know, to connect, um, to connect the different uh, platforms that can really talk to each other. So to me, it's a little bit too, of the military tends to, I think, trend towards those things that are known that are proven and wait, wait a little bit hedge for those things that are, you know, high in promise, but, you know, haven't actually delivered, uh, you know, core capability yet. So I feel like this is a, maybe it feels like a little bit like a hedged to me, but. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, sticking with uh, ABMS here, beyond ABMS, Air Force pushes experimental tech for AI, IT, and data from breaking defense. I think our role is, that, um, I think our role in that is to operationalize AI as much as possible, which means a lot of investment in infrastructure, data, and so on, Dunlap said who is uh, the chief architect here. Uh, For example, one of the big goals of the office's July 8th through 28th uh, architecture demonstration and evaluation ADE exercise, formerly known as ABMS on-ramps, was to serve as a bridge in the transition of DARPA's stitches, systems of systems technology integration tool chain for heterogeneous electronic systems, AI data, so it's an AI data translator. That was actually so sight of uh, what they spelled out there, but stitches is the data translator. Can, can one of you guys jump in here and, and talk about how, what is stitches? How does it connect with ABMS? And then also everything else we've been kind of talking about up until now. 
Who wants uh, that big one? I'll go, I'll go first, and then uh, and then I'll I'll let Matt uh, take it out of the park. Uh, so first of all, I think the big question is what is AVMS, uh, and that that's that's something that the Air Force is zeroing in on right now. Uh, they got a revector recently from the new secretary. The chief has some uh, internal action orders. So you know what is AVMS? What is not AVMS? What supports AVMS? Th- those are all questions that. It's really easy to just put that acronym on everything that sounds like it connects things, but it really doesn't mean it is. Uh, Stitches, yeah, it's really interesting that Stitches was a, a DARPA-funded initiative that got to a pretty pretty high TRL, and even internally, the government couldn't transition it to itself, and so it's gone through uh, ABMS on-ramps, and they're trying to find uh, um, demonstrations through service exercises to showcase this thing and the and the hopes that the a service will will palm for it build a build a budget put it in their program record uh it is so it's a data translator so it is transitioning um to to part of the air force uh but not in a communication uh sector so uh it could be used for for data links it could use communications it could be used for electronic warfare and so it's just a data translator for different types of uh, data that don't necessarily uh, aren't built to communicate and so it's that uh, that's why it's called stitches it stitches together a little translation um algorithm to let them communicate so it'll be curious to see once the uh, the air force gets pregnant with this in one uh program how it can scale and i think it's going to scale pretty quickly uh, but this is a this is a band-aid right this isn't the path forward this is the, this is your your bridging strategy of software before you build um networks uh and networks and networks and how and when they they uh, they stitch together uh yeah but the the other part of that is so abms you know, that's the Air Force's, uh, each service has their own little thing. That's the Air Force's version of their contribution to JADC2. And so, you know, JADC2 is one of the four, I think people forget this, JADC2 is one of the four key tenets of the new joint warfighting concept. Uh, and there's no unclassified version that's uh, that's out there. So you just have to press the I believe button. But what you can, uh, with something to remember though, is that, the original joint warfighting concept failed. Uh, and if you look at the timeline, that's kind of when ABMS was trying to put all these capability demos on. And so as the JWC has transformed and maybe the concept of JADC2 has evolved, uh, you're going to see uh, all of the services start to figure out uh, a way forward um, and how that fits into the bigger piece, though. Yeah, no, I think that's um, that's definitely where, where, where I think... Uh, where I think it's going as well. I mean, one of the things that's really critical to, to ABMS when you start to think about it from end to end and all the you know complexities is, yeah, there's the connectivity piece. So you have to, you know, you have to have those open you know commercial standards and and things like that that you can integrate onto onto all the different platforms um, so that so that you can you can enable that that commun- that seamless communication. But then there's the data piece too, and I think. This is really, I, I think, where the the whole ADA initiative is is going to be its greatest value is going to be, because ABMS is all about data, and you have to be able to you know expose that data for it to be used. You can have all the communication in the world, but if you don't have access to the data um, and you don't have the ability to uh, to share it in the right way, then uh, then then it becomes you know then it becomes really uh, really hard. So I think yeah, I think that's a really great point about stitches not being necessarily the end state. It's a critical, it's a critical enabler, but eventually we do need to move to 
kind of the, the OSD data management strategy, which is, you know, more focused around the API, open APIs, you know, machine assisted tagging of data and being able to move across multiple security levels, you know, having that zero trust using, you know, AI, you know, in, in different ways, creative ways. So yeah, there's a lot more to the, a lot more to the picture, but I think um, getting our hands around the data piece is, is where kind of my head's at to, to help really solve this puzzle and stitches, stitches is definitely helpful in that. Yeah. I think the, there's, there's the, the common, uh, the common saying, at least in the beltway that you know, 98% of the, the Pentagon's data is never even stored or looked at. And so if we, if we could even, you know, nudge along a couple percent, if it was just 95% that we didn't look at, that's, that's actually doing pretty good in, in, in our terms anyways. It seems like this one, I don't know how, it seems like AI is a bit far afield, right? It seems like the, just the connectivity and the networking is kind of the, uh, the basic point here. And then you can kind of start layering on these other things as you guys were talking about. Is AI yeah. just kind of like a show word? Well, it depends. There's, there's, there's all different types of AI. And I think people, you think AI and you think, you know, uh, Terminator and that kind of thing or Skynet, but you know, narrow AI is basically just an, a, you know, self-learning algorithm. So machine learning. And so like auto target recognition, those types of things, there's, there's narrow AI advancements that you, that, that exist that we can integrate. Uh, but yeah, they're pretty, pretty mature. And so if we could do that, it actually, uh, automate some of the processes that are, that rely on a person just standing, uh, staring at a screen all day. Uh, so if we can automate those types of processes, uh, it frees up the, the human, uh, manpower to do other things that a human needs to be doing. So by the way, uh, Mike informs us that there are 143 contractors currently, uh, working with the ABMS program. Plus 143 plus if you, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's multiple, uh, award announcements that have, that you string all together, it adds up to about 143 and counting and counting. So the next one we got here, the Pentagon is asking for 2.3 billion this year to accelerate microelectronic techs. Uh, three chip programs are there to keep an eye on first is ramp to demonstrate enhanced chip design, utilizing commercial fabrication for DOD ship. Uh, demonstrate unique and secure design approaches to develop accessible, accessible and cost-effective integrated design chips. And then ramp commercial in incentive, uh, incentivize U.S. chip makers to build onshore foundries capable of supporting DOD-specific designs. And of course, uh, DOD just picked Intel for a ramp C contract. That I'm not really sure how big that is. But uh, so, Mike, why were you uh, highlighting the uh, microelectronics war here? Yeah, there's, it's really interesting. And so if you ignore the actions, uh, just follow the money and, and look at how commercial industry is set up. So uh, in that article, I kind of talked about you know, the, the DOD, we use chips that are basically produced at the same places you, you know, the chips in your computer and your phone. And if you look at how the business model of the chip industry is set up, it's really interesting. So uh, TSMC is the largest chip foundry in the world, and it produces about 55% of all of the world's chips. Uh, Samsung is actually the second largest and it's uh, it's about 16% or so. So if you, if you add it up, it's about 70% of the world's foundries are not only not in the United States and they're not US companies, but they're actually right next door to China and North Korea. So when you look at, when you look at that, um, you know, TMC, they're actually spending about $12 billion to build a plant in Arizona, but it, it's really not useful for the Pentagon uh, because when you look at how the business structures in the chip market is set up, TSMC is actually a foundry business. They don't even design anything. Um, they 
they basically build things to spec uh, for other companies. And so that's why it's called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. That's the M in TSMC. So when you think of like ARM chips or the Apple, the new Apple chips that you hear about, um, they, those companies are only designing them. They give the specifications to TSMC, who then runs the factories to, to pump them out. And so when you look at the other hand, uh, same time period back in the 80s, Intel, they are very compelling for the Department of Defense because their entire business model is based on vertical integration. So they not only design their own chips, but they also produce them. And so there's, a, there's an inherent security and flexibility in owning the tech stack. And I think that's where the, the government is very interested in incentivizing them to build foundries in the United States. And so that's why you see there's $20 billion going into Arizona just for Intel. So if you add up the TSMC and Intel, uh, Arizona is going to turn into uh, not a Silicon Valley, a Silicon Desert, I guess. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely money going into the to Arizona to build chips. Yeah, definitely. I wonder, you know, Apple eventually took on its own ability to design chips and now it has some really great chips that they outsource. I wonder, you know, I wonder if uh, Apple could ever be incentivized to vertically integrate what they historically have been prone not to. Yeah, it's funny. I don't think you're going to see chips, but, uh, you know, they don't they don't produce their own phones either, though. So they own the they own the back end and then they license it out uh, for various factories, most of them in China, to actually make the phones. Yep. Matt, anything on that? No, I mean, I, I'm generally supportive of kind of building up the domestic base. I, you know, Intel, Intel has been a provider for, for, DoD, for DoD stuff. And, you know, Global Foundries was, was another, you know, is another, another place we go. And there's been some other, you know, entities that kind of operate at low scale. But in general, I think any, any way to build that trust piece so that we can minimize uh, trusted foundries, I think is, is where my head is at. <laughs> so, you know, it's one thing I think to do to onshore. Um, there's two different ways of looking at it. There's the onshoring to basically replace the commercial, um, you know, all the commercial manufacturing that maybe is being done in the U.S. And of course, most of it is being done overseas. So, but you know, so to, re to replace that, to try to replace what TSMC does is, is, a, is a really uh, tall order. But if we can at least manufacture all of the things that we need for our core national security interests um, and do it at an effective uh, cost and, and using the most up-to-date, you know, methodologies and, you know, latest tech, I think that's, that's the win because, you know, one of the things with uh, trusted foundries is you oftentimes, because you build stuff to be so secure, you can, you can have, you know, lose a lot of performance and we're going to need, you know, we're going to need some of that performance as we get into this AI high, you know, high speed, high speed data where we're, you know, we're, we're crunching, you know, crunching uh, complex algorithms and trying to, you know, make real time uh, decisions. So, um, so we want to stay high tech, but we want to, you know, build the trust and also be, be cost effective. So I think it's kind of like balancing all those things. And if some of these different um, initiatives do it, that's a huge win. Yeah. The, the trust seems kind of hard there because especially you want the, the economies of scale with the commercial line, but then you, you also want to have these additional layers of security and processes for the DOD stuff. And then, you know, how well does that actually work out? It seems like that was... You know, the plan in the 90s, says Mike reports on. Actually, Mike had a good thing here uh, where he says, questioning the logic of the words 
in the words of Dom- Dominic Toretto, of course, from Fast and Furious, you're going to go around and check everybody's shit out, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> basically the idea. That was great. Drag us down to uh, comment on that. But here's here's a nice little additional factoid for Mike. Thank a calculator company in Dallas for inventing the microchip back in 1959. A few years later, the military contracted Texas Instruments to incorporate their ma- their microchip into a new type of weapon, a low-cost laser-guided bomb, LGB. These became known as the Paveway LGBs and were used during the Vietnam War. And of course, it would take like dozens of <laughs> you know aircraft and sorties to go take out a bridge until you got an LGB, and then it was pretty much uh, the beginning of this... Uh, precision bombing right yeah it's funny you mentioned that the uh the bridge that that's famous for is called the uh, dragon's jaw bridge you guys remember the story about that so it was a bridge in vietnam and uh it was about 500 feet long and the military over the course of seven years flew almost 900 sorties to try to drop this bridge with uh dumb bombs and over the course of that, uh, we we lost 11 aircraft and a, a, we had a few POWs, lost some people. But it wasn't until we got LGBs. So the first sortie uh, was F-4s from the Air Force. Uh, LGBs dropped it in one pass. And then the Navy followed it up with a strike package and, and killed it. So, uh, yeah, 900 sorties, no laser. Uh, one, la- one bomb with a laser did a job. Yeah. So it's like the carpet bombing of, you know, World War II. Like it just took took like 50 what like 50 uh 50 sorties sometimes to like yeah knock out a bridge or something yeah and you had the yeah massive strike packages in world war ii it reminds me a little bit of continuous aim firing in the navy where you have like this literal thousand x improvement in cost effectiveness where it you know in the spanish-american war there's like hundreds or thousands of shots that were fired and only three landed and then just like right when they got continuous same firing it was basically like you know high 90 percent accuracy rate from there on out and so um this is kind of like a similar principle um one of those like step function increases in like effectiveness right and and cost effectiveness is yeah and we still use those same bombs today so f-35s dropping the same Paveway to uh, weapons from Vietnam. And and we can add that to the list of uh, systems that we are critical today, but are largely just incremental advances on things produced before the modern uh, acquisition system from the 1960s. <laughs> you know? Yeah. All right. So talking about problems of uh, 1960s acquisition that still linger today, the House has drafted legislation to help bridge the valley of death. And a couple of inter- interesting things Mike pulled out here. The bill would increase the Navy's Cyber STTR transition education programming funding by 140%, which means that Congress also believes that they are onto something and Air Force could talk to the Navy. Uh, the bill also directs the Strategic Capabilities Office to shift from a tech push paradigm to a warfighter pull model using Indo-Pacific mission needs and capability gaps. So two two kind of interesting things here. Let's let's just start with the the Cyber STTR. Of course, I'll, I'll let Matt yeah. take this one first. I've been uh, they've been going first too much, so you you got it. Yeah, sure. Oh no worries. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I didn't take as much away from this as um, as as maybe you did. I, I I was just thinking it was an increase. They I think they're trying to get the Navy, you know, more in the business. Is kind of how I kind of how I saw it. They've, They've had some success and they're trying to, you know, try, try to feed that success. 
I didn't necessarily, I don't know, I guess I didn't take it as like the Navy has this all figured out and um, everybody else should, should get on board. It, like it would have seemed instead of, instead of increasing the, their funding, it, it would have been better to have like, you know, them to write up best practices or something that, that would do it. So I guess I, I maybe looked at that one a little differently and maybe I need to go back and read it, but yeah, I, I didn't read into that one as much. Well, it's just as likely that I screwed that up too, though. So <laughs> I, I guess I was wondering like what happened to the Air Force, right? Like, cause Air Force centralized all their cyber funding with AFWORKS and did they get any increase? Like the Navy cyber is still kind of spread out across all of this organization. So maybe because they didn't try new things, they, they got the bump up whereas like, you know, oversight was like uncertain about this new thing, you know? Yeah. And I don't think it's the, it's the cyber. So the cyber, those programs are SBA set-asides. Uh, that's not even DOD. We participate in the set-aside program, but I think this was more about the, the transitioning of the tech. And so putting money into the, the transition program, not just the, the cyber part of it. Um, yeah, I'm not, I, I, I saw the I article. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read too much into it. But you know, at the end of the day, anything that uh, you know goes back to the stitches uh, example that we talked about earlier. So, you know, our labs, our government-funded labs, which end up contracting out to companies, uh, we advance TRL from you know one to whatever. Usually, it's you know four, five, maybe six. Uh, but until you get to a eight, you're not really a programmer record. And so, like the the six, seven, eight is kind of the valley of death. And there's very few. Uh, people that are uh, investing uh, to bridge that valley of death. That's the valley of death. And even if you can get the TRL, uh, the tech readiness level that far, then you have to go look at the MRL, the manufacturing readiness level, which I think is the next big blind spot that we have is you can have something that's a TRL nine, but if it's no way to produce it at scale, uh, it really doesn't matter, right? You can have, you know, one thing to win the war. If you only have one of them, uh, it's really not that good. Uh, so I think it'd be interesting to see how this detect transfer part of this goes. If it's um, has something to do with to advance the manufacturing readiness level just beyond the tech readiness level, then I think that's where the key to scale is. So if you can get the MRL to advance at the same time as the TRL uh, for those big bets, I think that's when you have a winning uh, formula for transition. One thing I will say about the Navy labs too, I got to, I guess, spend some time with them a few years ago is they, um, one of the differences that I noticed between uh, what ONR and um, Navy Research Lab is they t sometimes will only take on projects that are actually sponsored. And so uh, you, you definitely increase your odds of success uh, of technology transition if you already have a sponsor that is, um, you know, is actively giving you funds and saying, I need this thing and tell me when it's ready so that I can bring it over. And so I think that might be, maybe that is one thing we need to kind of look more closely at the Navy is, you know, the Air Force the program mostly operates on the AFRL model. Um, and yeah, it does all kinds of great things, but it's often fairly disconnected from the, from a actual program or a sponsor. And yeah, they have to get it at some point, but sometimes it's just like a signature on a paper, not a real commitment. And so, yeah, that's actually a good point, Mike, like maybe, Maybe this is one to kind of like study more and see what lessons are learned there and how that can be applied to uh, to some other ones. One of the trade-offs I will say is that in talking with the Navy is because they would only sometimes take things that were a little bit more mature, they sometimes think go after the riskier stuff. I, I don't know if I can say with authority that AFRL does do that or that Army Research Lab does that, but, but yeah, it might be some lessons learned. Yeah, good point. You know, 
Mike, I wanted to, to ping you on why you like it seemed like you were, thought it was a good idea that the SCO, the Strategic Capabilities Office, would shift from a tech push to a warfighter pull kind of along your battle lab idea. Um, what I guess, like in general, there's you need the interaction between them, and the SCO seems to have been doing good things. Why, why change what they're doing? Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, I don't think most people know everything that they're doing in the first place. So a lot of it's you know, speculation, what is releasable that you see in the press. Uh, what I'll say is, you know, it, they started as a, uh, a warfighter pull model to uh, for the combatant commands. And that's where the, Dr. Roper, I think, started off as. And then they kind of transitioned into um, a little more tech development. And so it was interesting at, at one time, you know, they started getting a little bit in DARPA's lane and then DARPA started getting a little bit in SCO's lane um, because they were looking for some transition wins. So higher TRL kind of lower, um, you know, lower lift, bigger win type problems, not the uh, strategic surprise that DARPA is famous for. And so they kind of started getting each other's lanes. Um, and I think that SCO lost its way a little bit in that regard. And, and, They've kind of returned a little bit, I think, into what they were uh, what they were doing before. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how history looks back of ten years, you know, the first ten years of the Strategic Capabilities Office. Like, what is there? What did they transition, and what did they actually do? And you know, when will we know about it, if ever? Uh, just like DARPA, you're ne you're never gonna. It'll be a long time before you ever see some of the things that they've developed transition. Uh, some you'll hear about, like the F one seventeen. Some you won't. So it's, it's really interesting uh, or really hard to measure the outputs of, of the organization, but it did have a sense for a while that they were kind of losing their way. And so uh, th this direction to, to put him back into a warfighter pool type model um, puts them squarely outside of the lane of DARPA. And it's, there's kind of a um, division of interests and division of duties there. That's probably a good thing. Yeah. And I, I guess the only thing I'd add to that is, is the, um, there, there also needs to be a, um, a kind of a discrimination between what's in the the act, the general acquisition lane, and what's in what's in SCO's lane. Because um, when you take on something like Indo-Pacific Command, I mean that is right apart from the Russian theater. I mean that is the focus of the entire the entire military. So to have one OSD level organization that's fairly minimally manned, you know, kind of taking on all the operational needs of Indo-PACOM is probably, you know, a step too far. So I feel like there also needs to be kind of, you know, a delineation of, okay, it's for those immediate things for, you know, those things that are needed within the next two, three years, because there's a critical capability gap. And if a war went off, you know, we'd be left, you know, uh, we'd be left hanging. Um, and then, then, you know, okay, the rest, you know, the, the longer term stuff, is going to be done by by the different projects that the service is funding based on joint staff requirements, um, and if you know if there is major disconnects, then I think joint staff. I kind of keep going back to this: the joint staff needs to kind of understand this better, this picture better about what capabilities are being developed and how they integrate for for the Indo-PACOM mission. You know, ten years, whatever the timeframes are that the project, these different acquisition programs are delivering. Um, and so, yeah, that is one thing: is like SCO can't become everything it has to it has to pick its 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 uh its projects and that was always like mike was saying it was always the very high maturity things it was integrating things in unique and creative ways like arsenal plane and different stuff so um yeah so they definitely have to kind of i think stay in their lane otherwise it's just going to become you know uh become this thing where they're just like too many tasks and over over tasked and and or they grow and become like a huge huge organization or something it's 
Yeah, and it's a good point because they're they're OS they're an OSD organization, and so I think where they sit, they can see you know the services all have a responsibility to organize, train, and equip, and so when you get to the equip part, you know when you sit at the OSD level, you can kind of see what is inherently joint, where the gaps and seams are, and so what are the things that we should invest in that no service individually wants to put money into? Uh, Project Pele is a great example. The uh, the mobile nuclear um, reactor power plant. Uh, that's probably something that the you know the army very interested in, but that doesn't want to touch it. Uh, same thing with the Air Force; they probably have a have a, a strong need for that. Don't want to touch it. The Navy has enough nuclear stuff going on for power plants, so they don't want to touch it. And so, by SCO taking that on and doing the risk reduction, I think it creates a lot of buy-in for the services to then you know build a transition pathway. Where should it live, and what should it do? And so, the OSD uh, putting money in the SCO for that regard, I think, is a great thing. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I wonder, you know, looking at it here, Section 831 of the House's NDAA, uh, it seems like I wonder how much of it is actually like kind of a knock on the SCO as opposed to it just being a convenient place to insert a pilot program for this mission management, kind of along the lines of our friend Dan Pat's idea, right, for kind of mission specific, you know, portfolio items. And I guess one of my my concerns here is like, okay, we're going to shift to, you know, warfighter pull. And it says here, you know, they're going to have to work out um, a mission for Indo-PACOM that's joint service and then get sign off from uh, the secretary of defense. But it seems like, you know, how do you just like assign a mission? You're like, you're, you're just going in search of this mission. And then like, do you have the right people? Cause it, it seems to me like, you know, the best programs and the best like solutions actually come from someone who's been thinking about it and working at it. And, you know, like has this kind of vision that they need to implement rather than just like throw, throw a mission at a guy and just say, go figure it out. Right. And so I guess, you know, does, (laughs) which one follows, which is, is, I guess my, my question. Yeah. So, so what I'll, what I will say is that every um, combatant command has a vetted, uh, validated uh, capability gaps list, and it's prioritized, you know, one to n. And so every every four star in charge of a combat command in his pocket or somewhere has a list of you know one to ten, one to twenty, one to thirty, in order of his biggest capability gaps. And so those those lists already exist. Everyone has them. It's just a matter of having an organization that is resourced and to go after those priority capability gaps. That's the same list, Mike. You're talking about the IPL, right? That's sort of okay. yeah. There, there are there are different names for different things, but they're they're basically yeah IPL capability gaps list. I mean, but that's a lot of times that's what the COCOMs will provide the services, and the services promptly <laughs> promptly go after their own stuff. That, that is also correct. All maybe, right, maybe they do need to go. You're starting to you're starting to convince me. <laughs> or or you know the Air Force had a battle lab. I'll tell you. Yeah, let's let's regenerate the uh, the battle lab idea and. and Whoever's out there that wants to push it, you know, I'm, get still, it going. I'm still working on that. I'm still working on that. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Then we'll, I'll, we'll I'll be... keep you posted. Yeah, there you go. All right, let's keep on moving. Pentagon poised to unveil, demonstrate classified space weapon from breaking defense. In space, we overclassify everything, Heighton told the National Security Space Association on January 22nd. Deterrence does not happen in the classified world. Deterrence does not happen in the black. Deterrence happens in the white. Another source opined, the declassification thing is a disaster. The genesis is supposedly for deterrence, but those doing it lack basic understandings of understanding of deterrence. 
it's an effing shit show is the quote there. So um, a couple of different sides on the classify versus declassify. Uh, but, you know, we've been hearing a little bit about this from the Space Force, and I guess we'll see kind of what happens with that. There wasn't too much information. It was kind of all speculation. So um, we'll, we'll move on a little bit to kind of a follow-up thing that the Breaking Defense did. By far the most popular guess on what they might be de declassifying was an onboard RF jammer, either carried by certain highly valuable U.S. satellites themselves or more likely on maneuverable bodyguard satellites in February and again in May 2020, the mysterious X-37B space plane was used to deploy several small satellites that were not officially cataloged by the United States. As SWF paper put it, this suggests that the XD may have a mission to serve as a covert satellite deployment platform. The secrecy surrounding both the X-37 and the deployment may indicate that they are part of a covert intelligence program, but also may indicate testing offensive technologies or capabilities. So Matt, did you have anything to uh, add to these pair of uh, Space Force articles? I mean, I'm, I'm extremely intrigued. Um, you know, I work in that business a little bit and I, you know, it is very compartmentalized and it is interesting. I don't think people probably appreciate that the way classification works is it's, it's not usually the operational community pretty rarely. It's, it's usually a, the security community that, you know, based on, you know, critical program information that they feel needs to be protected in certain ways. And there's different groups that determine things and it's a multi- multifunctional group that gets together and figures this stuff out. Um, and so, yeah, it can be pretty frustrating to be in an organization and you're working very closely, you're providing information to another group and you have no clue what they do. Um, and so I think it's one of those things where things should be classified at certain levels, but sometimes, sometimes they're bumped up another level or two that just makes it particularly onerous. And then makes it really, really hard to kind of have conversations that probably should be happening. So pretty, um, pretty interested to see what they, what they are willing to acknowledge. The other, the other piece I would add here is declassifying an asset does not mean they're declassifying its full capability. So I could, I could definitely see, you know, them saying this thing exists, but you know, it, it, they won't, they won't tell exactly what its limitations or full capabilities are. So uh, probably good to start to make, uh, you know, Russian China aware that, you know, if they if they do something um, dangerous or reckless, which I actually don't think they will, I think they're very cognizant too of, of, of things getting out of control in space and it harming them, you know, more than helping them. But I, I definitely could see a scenario where if China feels like they are, you know, being threatened or they're about to engage in a conflict, could definitely see them going full force and uh, trying to deny us, you know, critical space assets. So, so that's definitely definitely uh, a real probability. And so, letting them know we have we have some things is probably somewhat good for deterrence. I personally think it will just increase their interest level, <laughs> and now they will now they will devote more resources to trying to understand what 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 that is. So, I think there is like a uh, a little bit of a, a you, you know a counter, a counter to this of, of yeah, you reveal something and then you you kind of draw interest to it, whereas. If you just kept it um, kept it hidden, you know, you just maybe you could fly under the radar. But one of the other points, last thing I'll say, one of the other points that uh, that was brought up here is it is really getting harder to hide things in space. There's a lot of hobbyists and stuff that uh, that look at the space catalog, which is published, um, and you know, so, some things, uh, you know, uh, clearly the you know the IC community doesn't want everyone to know where their stuff is at. But it's getting more harder to hide things that are um, that are there because people go, hey, that's not in the space catalog, but I can see it in my telescope. So 
you know, so I, I think we are getting to a point where like General Hyatt acknowledged that, um, you know, things are going to get noticed. They're, they're, they're not going to fly under the radar as, as much as they may have in the past. But yeah, what, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was, yeah, sure. I mean, I was just thinking that uh, I wonder how much like all, you know, how they say like all politics is domestic. I wonder how much is like about deterrence. Cause like, I don't think they're actually going to like turn, you know, special access programs into the white, right. They're going to still be special, but they're going to release some information. So I wonder how much of it is really just about like, Hey, you know, like public and Congress, we're doing cool things in this space for, we need more money, right? Like you're not just sending things down a black hole, right? Cause so much of the space budget is actually classified. Yeah, I would agree that it's, uh, I, I have uh, I have some touch points with the space portfolio, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's a dumpster fire. Uh, it's definitely <laughs> stovepiped, and and really the the model of of those programs, they're not incentivized to share across portfolios, even if you you can have a synergistic effect of integrating these capabilities. The the way I mean, it's it's an institution set up from the Cold War, and it hasn't changed at all. So, I mean, we're we're it's the same Cold War model for our security apparatus. And that's really probably our, our biggest limitation in the entire uh, Department of Defense is our security apparatus. It's not that we don't have capabilities, it's we just can't communicate with each other. And so when you look at, uh, I thought it was interesting about the deterrence um, narrative because the whole point of strategic competition is not to deter, it's to compel. And the fact that people still, or we're almost to the next national defense strategy, and still there's not a single four-star general that can define strategic competition or give a vignette that is actually strategic competition. It's, uh, and it's just another one. Like deterrence is not what it's about. It's about compelling. If I selectively disclose a capability, I should be mindful of the second order effect that I'm trying to compel out of my competitor. It's, it's interesting that inaction is not why we disclose stuff. It would should be to elicit a response that we have planned. And that's what strategic competition is all about. So it's, it's interesting that we still have people not comprehending what that actually means. Well, I think you just dropped the knowledge bomb on me there. That's a really good point. But I want to go back to your other point on the silos. It feels like that, like, so if they are actually going to like straight up declassify these programs, that would be huge, right? Because it seems like, you know, DOD programs are stovepiped and, Black programs are even more stovepipe, but they like to do that because maybe it releases them from some of the acquisition rules and strictures. But it's like you get rid of all of your kind of enterprise knowledge and sharing and capabilities that should be flowing down to the programs rather than, you know, just working on all of these things in a vacuum. Um, so, you know, power to them, I guess, if, if that's what they're looking at. Yeah, hope we'll see how it shakes out. All right, moving on. DARPA requests information for wing in ground wig effect aircraft from U.S. military, Naval News. It's essentially a plane that flies over a surface by gaining support from the reaction of the air against the surface of the earth, earth or water to lift up the bottom of the wings or a hover plane. The wig vehicle achieves increased aerodynamic efficiencies and it addresses many of the operational limita limitations of traditional sea and airlift platforms in maritime theaters, but they are unable to operate in high sea states and have limited capability to avoid collisions in congested environments. So DARPA is really looking at this for kind of like maritime surveillance and being able to take off and land on water. Um, a good way aircraft example is the Boeing Phantom Works Pelican designed around 2002. 
Boeing Pelican concept shows how massive such a wig aircraft can exist with a wig span of 500 feet compared to the 747's 213 feet. So interest, interesting, uh, you know, development uh, scheme that they're going for here, but could be uh, have a lot of interesting uh, uh, capabilities. Any yeah, thoughts, that's, yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that's a play. It's funny. The, uh, the, the Pelican it's from, I would just say about 20 years ago, but really that's a play from, you know, the Russians from 50 years ago. So the, uh, the Russian, um, the Lund class, the Akronoplan, I believe it was called, that was the, their big, uh, massive seaplane. So it, it had eight engines carried supersonic anti-ship missiles uh, they only ever built one. Actually, it was just turned into a museum about 12 months ago. So you can actually go and tour it now uh, if you go to Russia. Uh, but it's the same concept. But they're, they're, the reason why these things are so big is the concept of how they operate in ground effect. And so the ground effect occurs based on the height of the aircraft is compared to the wingspan of the aircraft. So in the, the Boeing example, if you have a wingspan of 500 feet, you can generate that that ground effect uh, within 500 feet of the surface. And so when you look at an ocean that has big waves, uh, you need a bigger plane to be further away from the waves. Um, I say that, but then there's some interesting stuff going on with seaplanes right now. Um, you know, I saw this article and I was reminded of a, uh, there's a startup actually called Regent who is building an eight engine all electric sea glider. Uh, and it's actually barked by, uh, backed by uh, uh, Mark Cuban. So it's, uh, it's about 180 mile range. It goes 180 miles an hour and it, it carries, uh, you know, people like a corporate jet, except it does it on the ocean. So it's interesting that these, these, you know, what's old is new again. <laughs> yeah. Same with uh, hypersonics and a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Matt? I don't know. I just, I, I was trying to understand the, um, like the application for this one, you know, so you're, you're operating in an environment, you know, is the idea that you would have these, I get the, I get the anti-ship kind of, you know, mission that, that kind of makes sense, but it sounds like this is, this is quite a bit more, it's, they're talking about it capable of carrying multi-amphibious vehicles. I mean, it's like, I was trying to think about the operational concept. Is it like one of these things where you would kind of just plop these around the ocean and the South China Sea, and then if you needed to deploy a couple army units, you know, are there army units sitting inside these things waiting to be uh, brought onto some island or dropped off or parachuted or, yeah, I was trying to understand yeah, I think this is more about the, just the concept. The the you can transport very big things over very far distances with not a lot of energy because you're in that ground effect. So you're in that example, like that thing would would take so much energy to stay airborne. But if it flies within ground effect, it, it can go very far or very fast, or it can carry a lot of things. So you just kind of you know choose which one. So if you can you know carry a C-17's worth of stuff uh, in something the size of a C-17, but you can carry it. 40 or 50% further because you're operating in ground effect uh, okay. across the ocean, then that's kind of the compelling reason uh, from what I, from what I understand of it. Okay. So that makes sense. So I guess the, the takeoff and landing in the water, I still, still, uh, still trying struggling a little bit to understand is that, would that be like to resupply, uh, resupply ships or like, how would that work? Like to, yeah, it's interesting if it takes off and lands in the ocean versus operates in ground effect. So we have seaplanes that, fly high and they land in the ocean. We've had that, you know, World War II era. Mm -hmm. um, the the Russian example was so massive that it, it basically just sat in the ocean because it couldn't ever get high enough. But, you know, there could be a hybrid alternative where you can have something that uses a runway or land on the ocean and it flies in ground effect. So 
Yeah. Interesting to see what, what comes out of this, uh, this program. I think it's a good, yeah. it's a good aerospace, uh, research project. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe they're trying to, uh, they're going after all these requirements in one RFI to see, to see what sticks and then they can kind of mold the, uh, mold the concept around, around, uh, what they can achieve in a reasonable amount of time. Maybe the, the Russian plane that Mike was talking about, I was just looking at it and it's horizontal, tail was actually like the same length as its overall wingspan it's because it had a radar in it it was a huge radar in that yeah it had a yeah yeah. it had a massive radar in the the tail yeah that's right that's right and it also looked like that's kind of where they placed the some 23 millimeter cannons it was was an interesting set design yeah it looks like a uh looks like a fifth grader designed it (laughs) something for something for the x-men that's right that's right all right the last one we'll do here is the hask seeks seeks constraints on uh, F-35 buys, multi-year sustainment contract plans from breaking defense. In essence, this language means that budget planners would have to take, it into, take into account the long tail costs of sustaining the jets, a long-standing issue for the F-35, in order to decide how many of the fighters they can afford to maintain in their eventual fleet. The Hass draft bill also requires Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to submit a report no later than March 1st, 2022 on sustainability costs before the F-35 Joint Program Office can move to a performance-based logistics PBL contract with prime contractor Lockheed Martin. So a couple of things here, but really just focusing on the sustainment costs. And you would have thought, hey, there, <laughs> there was sustainment. There, this was a very sustainment-focused heavy kind of program, right? To reduce um, the sustainment costs through commonality and all of that. And yet, like 20 years later, <laughs> like they're saying that they're not taking sustainment into account in, in these decisions. So how is this, how is this going on? Uh, Matt, I'll let you take this one home. Okay. And, and Eric, uh, terrible, terrible job ending on the F-35 sustainment. What a, what a way to go out. Um, yeah. I might have to pick some more. <laughs> yeah, we we're just talking about an X-Men type <laughs> aircraft designed by a fifth grader. And, and then you want to end on F-35 sustainment. Oh, come man. on. <laughs> brutal, brutal. Sorry, listeners. Um, yeah, I guess I guess the thing I'd say on this, I spent I spent a good deal of time with the calls to war room people at F-35 and those that poor team. I mean, they struggled, you know, to no end to try to find ways of reducing the sustainment costs for the F-35. It's, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, for one, the parts are not all that common amongst the variants. Um, and, you know, two, it's it, it's a complicated airplane. It has, you know, it does have have issues and those issues are probably not going to go away especially as they get more hours on them. So yeah, this is especially fuel costs to kind of affect, you know, affect this, this uh, rate. Mike can go into the details of, of flying hour costs, but um, there's, there's no answer here, right? I mean, I think the only answer could be is if you really get a, a PBL construct that gets you the operational performance that you need and Lockheed can find some efficiencies just from those, you know, those, those contracts they have with their subs, those long-term agreements that, that maybe they can buy down some costs. Maybe there are some slight efficiencies, but I'm really skeptical that you're going to see big, big shifts. I'm, I'm skeptical you're going to see anything, you know, beyond the five, 10% range. And so, um, so I think, um, I think, I think this is something you have to live with. And I think it'll have to roll into decisions that, uh, you know, generals and Congress make on how many of these jets to ultimately buy and and how to you know diversify with um with other platforms you know maybe unmanned uh, platforms so 
uh, or NGAD or something. So yeah, this, this one's a tough one. I don't, I don't think this report will say anything that we didn't already know. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, if I was a guessing, if I was a betting man, I'd say the yeah, 10% is probably the max before you start looking at, uh, completely restructuring things that have, you know, a very high cost up front that makes it unpalatable when a program you've put a lot of money into already. Um, yeah. So you're, you're just, you're messing with the margins. You're not actually getting to the, uh, the issue of how these, the original program was structured to kind of set it up to be what it is right now. So, yeah. So on that down note, that's what we got for you this week. <laughs> Mike Benitez and Matt McGregor. Thanks for joining me. And we'll talk to you next time. See you, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.